All right. We are on our second Loopcast Live. What's up, everyone? I'm here joined by my co-hosts, Erica and Josh, coming off the weekend, and we have quite a few news stories to discuss, but none more pressing than our policy wonk. Josh, uh, we got an election season in full swing here, and uh, I'd like to get some predictions. What what are you seeing? Well, first off, for people maybe on initiative, what is the Iowa caucus? Why is it significant? And maybe what are some of your expectations going forward? Yeah, I mean, people are probably more familiar with a primary, and a primary is where the the polls are open all day from like seven in the morning to like eight at night or something like that. At any time you can come in and you can cast your ballot. You might even have early voting days ahead of time. Caucuses are not like that. They're organized at a certain time and place, and so it's like seven p.m. to eight p.m. or whatever, and you go to a certain place and people make the case for their candidate and. Uh, they might even have rules suggesting that, okay, this area, you know, you have to get 15% or something like that. So what might happen is uh, your favorite candidate might not get the high, uh, high enough number, and then you swing your support to somebody else. And so there's this going back and forth between, you know, all the different camps uh, who are trying to, you know, support their candidate. And why is this such a big deal? I mean, kind of the reason it's a big deal is that New Hampshire state staked a, a claim to be the first primary in the country. And then Woo. I was like, hey, we, we'll just do caucuses. So they do these caucuses. It's not a primary, so it's a little bit different. But uh, we're first. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And the way it shakes out is that the Iowa caucuses tend to be dominated uh, with social conservatives, or at least not like completely dominated, but they, they make up a good sizable chunk. And so you get some surprises. You know, in 1988, Pat Robertson of the Christian Coalition ended up surprising everybody. I think he got like second place or something like that. And it was really kind of shocking. Uh, Bob Dole got first. I think George H.W. Uh, Bush got third. And it didn't end up meaning that Pat Robertson really had a chance, but it was a way for uh, conservatives in, Iowa's, in Iowa to say, hey, I don't like the candidates that we have. And then uh, Mike Huckabee uh, did very well in 2008, shocked everybody. That was kind of an upset. He came from like 3% and then just kept riding the wave. And we saw that again in 2012 with Rick Santorum. Uh, he won mm -hmm. the Iowa caucuses. And so um, there is an opportunity for uh, a candidate to catch fire uh, and, and, and thrust themselves into the campaign. Rick Santorum ended up staying in that campaign almost near towards the end, ultimately, Mitt Romney. Uh, prevailed there, but it has that ability to catapult a campaign long into the primaries. And uh, that's what, you know, candidates are hoping for. Like uh, Vivek was hoping that he would get a, a boost out of Iowa. That doesn't look like it's going to happen. Rick, um, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was hoping to, he's visited all 99 counties. He's like, he's hoping and it'll definitely catapult him into the rest of the race uh, and give him a chance of uh, toppling Trump. It does not, though, appear that that's going to be the case. In fact, Donald Trump is leading at all the polls in Iowa, including polls from the Des Moines Register, which are considered pretty accurate. Uh, he's leading by over 30 points. And anytime a candidate le is leading by over 30 points, they tend to go on to win the nomination. So uh, unless there's some big out, uh, upset, I mean, the th thing is, that poll showed DeSantis actually in third. I don't think he'll get third. I think he does get second place. I think the the support for Nikki Haley involves a lot of independents and actually Democrats who may not necessarily go out to a caucus and spend an hour and a half trying to convince people to vote for Nikki Haley. So I think ultimately she doesn't get second place, but third and Santos gets 
second. But Trump has a chance at uh, a big blowout win. And so DeSantis needs to, he's working overtime to try to make sure that he's still in contention. Yeah, yeah speaking of, oh, there we, we go. A, we have a pretty high profile uh, endorsement here with Marco Rubio. And interesting timing on this, eh? I heard that, you know, an endorsement after a blowout win in the Iowa caucus is meaningless uh, in the Trump world. And I think there's probably some truth to that. Uh, is there a reason why you think Marco Rubio jumped in now at this point? I mean, in Florida, obviously being a lot of controversial, there's two major candidates in Florida right now. Uh, what does this mean to, to the race? Well, you mean that obviously, you know, Ron DeSantis is the governor of Florida. So some people think it's a snub and then Marco could say, well, I mean, Donald Trump is from Florida too now. So, I mean, <laughs> but um, no, I think ultimately there, you know, Rubio, I think sees the writing on the wall, whether or not he was, told he had to endorse him otherwise he wouldn't be able to play ball with the trump administration i don't know if that's necessarily true i mean it's possible that they said that to him his campaign but i think ultimately for rubio he sees the writing on the wall anyone with this large of a lead 30 some points uh coming into december and january that person's the nominee i mean it you know it, it again we still play the game you know, we still go through the motions. We still go through Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, you know, Florida primary, Michigan primaries. We're still going to go through it. And, you know, lightning can, you know, someone could catch lightning in a bottle. Something could, uh, it could be a fluke, you know. I mean, you, we'll see. But, you know, if if history is any uh, judge here, someone, a candidate like Trump that's got this massive of a lead coming into the first contest, uh, he's got like a 95% chance of pulling this off and winning the whole thing. Any thoughts, Erica? Yeah, I guess my, my, my thoughts go toward the black swan event, right? That maybe there's going to be something that, that blows up and we can't, that's the non-predictables, right? But yeah, it's today, Iowa caucuses, not too excited about it. There, there's not a lot of big questions except will Ron DeSantis pull it out? I think the last numbers I saw, the Des Moines Register that you were talking about, Josh, we've got Trump at 48%. We've got Nikki Haley at 20 and Ron at 16, Vivek below 10 at eight. And so, yeah, it would be, I guess the surprise would be if Ron blows that poll, but it, like you said, Josh, wouldn't really be a surprise given that it is Iowa. And I think too, Nikki Haley's supporters being Democrat or independent, isn't it true that in, in Iowa for them to caucus, they would have to switch. They would have to switch to Republican in order to even participate in the caucus. Yeah, they could. So, and who's going to do that? They're you know? going to spend that much time, you know, right. energy, especially right. when it's negative 15 or whatever it is in Iowa today. So <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm staying yeah. at home No. Yeah. So not a lot there. I guess the the Black Swan event that comes to mind that could blow it out of the water other than, uh, you know, the early demise or timely demise of uh, the candidates would be um, something along Trump's legal battles heating up. He gets a conviction or something like that. I don't I don't know. And well, actually, I, I wanted actually, to ask you, Josh, well, I wanted I to ask just you. From what else. I mean, right, right. So far, it's helped we'll them. See. Yeah, True. for sure. Every time, and you know, the, big, the 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 fact that all these courts were trying to indict Trump was the was the thing that kind of cemented his uh, lead, you know, because he had he had a lead and it was getting waning there for a while, and then it cemented it. And then I would say the number two thing is all these polls that have come out in the last uh, four or five weeks showing Trump leading Biden in a matchup for twenty twenty four. I mean, it's it, one of DeSantis' essential arguments, which is not a dumb argument, it was actually, I think, I'm, I think it makes sense, was that, look, I love Trump, you love Trump, 
But the fact is, he's not going to be able to win in November. So therefore, you, you know, go for me. Well, if the polling is out that shows uh, Trump leading Biden in several of these swing states, then there goes that argument. So it's tough. Uh, yes. And I'd like like to just send out a reminder. Uh, what's up, Eric? Uh, happy Monday to everyone here in the chat live with us. Uh, yes, indeed. We are doing live shows every Monday, noon Eastern on on Monday, as I mentioned. Uh, so come on. Uh, we'll hang out with you. Uh, get it live. Get a fresh feel to it. And thank you for joining us, those that are here. So we move on to the next section here. Um, <laughs> I have in the notes. Uh, Pope opens up DDF, hell and Marxism. Wow. Uh, I know <laughs> I wish these aren't the things that are happening, but we bring you the truth and we don't apologize for that. Uh, it's an interesting weekend uh, to be a Catholic as, as it has been for the past couple weekends, unfortunately. Uh, the, the biggest of such news was uh, Cardinal Fernandez uh, came out in an interview and essentially said, yes, uh, the Pope was aware of this book. Uh, he, he had full confidence in me. That's not an issue at all. And then he went on to compare himself to, I believe, uh, John Paul II, and then uh, Hildegard of Bingen. Uh, some <laughs> some heavy hitters to compare yourself to. Um, yeah, well, I was so surprised you do that comparison to John Paul II. The question is, of course, uh, is a man like this who wrote this kind of smut, porno smut books, you know, first the one about kissing and now this other one that mentions just gross Everything. things. I won't even say it here. I won't even say it on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, but if you want to look, we have a discreet thing where you can click it and read it. And some people even got mad at us that we were pushing the smut. Like we're telling people <laughs> the truth. Okay. That was wild to get mad. We're at making it available. That was wild right. because that, was a little that actually yeah. happened. What do you, what do you want me to say? It didn't happen. Like, yeah. Cause otherwise people say, oh, you're not telling the truth. You know, you're not <laughs> forthcoming. It's like, I mean, come on. You can't so, win. Can't it's win. Back to the, yeah. It's back to the libraries thing, right? Like, I remember the Hide the Pride campaign. People were mad that we were sharing the actual books that were in front of children. And you're right. like, shouldn't you be more mad that these books are in front of children and taxpayers <laughs> are paying for it? And in this case, well, shouldn't I, I was, you be more I, mad that the DDF is writing pornographic books? Like, in the videos that we put out on that on those books, as well as uh, on our articles on the website, we always have that disclaimer saying, look, we want to be upfront and honest with you with exactly the kind of filth that they're trying to share with their kids or the filth that the guy in charge of protecting the deposit of the faith professes. This is what he believes. We give you those warnings and you and we don't just flash it in front of your face. We say, hey, if you, you know, if you don't want to see this, unclick, you know, don't check this out. But if you do, here's the button. You can see it and show that we're being honest journalists and representing it. Um, and sometimes we'll put a little sensor box, you know, above something or whatever. So we don't show every last thing. Uh, you know, we're not trying to inspire pure interest here, but we're trying to be upfront and honest here. And this guy, you know, he's, he's a total leftist, this guy, um, Fernandez, and he's written smut and he used this position to try to promote these, uh, blessings of same sex couples. And it, it seems to me that he doesn't have the deposit of the faith at best. Uh, he, he doesn't care about it. That's not what he cares about. He wants to promote an agenda. And that's what the fiducia fabulosa is all about. <laughs> and frankly, it would not surprise me at a, that a leftist like this would say, oh, well, yeah, I talked, I, the Pope knew about all this stuff beforehand. Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, how much did the Pope know? Did you say, oh, I wrote a few books that were controversial that, you know, the conservatives and the traditionalists aren't going to like? Is that what you meant by you that he knew? I mean, did he actually know that you made references to 
you know, profane, you know, I just I can't even get into it. I mean, yeah, it's don't. Yeah. <laughs> Erica, yeah, what, it's, I, what I think would be worth getting into, and I know you, you wrote up on this, uh, the interview with EFE. Uh, I think the back and forth is pretty illustrative if you wanted to. Yeah, talk yeah, definitely. So th the same interview in which he talks about how the Pope knew when he appointed me, I'm just working in the tradition of John Paul II, Hildegard of Bingen. One of, there were several exchanges with the interviewer that I think were really telling and, and kind of proved Josh's point. The interviewer asked him, could this document, Fiducia, lead to strong division in the church? And Fernandez, he goes, the division already existed and this document He's saying it only made it transparent. And of course, this is a translation. But when someone does that, when they're when they refuse to take responsibility for the the ba the backlash or the resistance that is becoming evident, you know, from all over the world to something that they wrote and they promulgated, when they're saying, "Oh, well, it was already there. The church is already divided." That's precisely the opposite of the role of the head of the DDF in the church, which is to protect the unity of the Catholic faith in service of the Holy Father, um, to, to draw people together. When you, and it's just completely irresponsible as a pastor, as a, a successor to the apostles to say, oh, well, the division's already there. I'm just showing it. Well, that's not your job. Your job isn't to expose division. Your job is to preach the truth. And that, so that little exchange right there was super telling. There was one more that, um, Oh, this has two more. Can I do two more? All right. You do two more. The interviewer, Go for it, all right. the interviewer goes, <clears throat> have you discussed these attacks and criticisms? And you assume they mean the African bishops and the all of the bishops' conferences all over the, the global church. Have you discussed these attacks with Francisco, with Pope Francis? And Fernandez goes, oh, yes, he considers them purifications from God to allow us to better and more humbly fulfill the task the Lord entrusts to us, which, again, in Fernandez's mind, and I don't want to read into the mind of the Pope too much here, but he said it himself, make a mess. And so it's, you know, all of these attacks are just me fulfilling Ask my role. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, again, this whole interview was just, um, again, I say this all the time, but like, I feel like it's in the upside down on the church here. This is the, the exact opposite of the roles that these shepherds are meant to be playing. And then this was the kicker for me. I was like, well, maybe this is it. Fernandez is, uh, he starts off with, I don't think I'll be in the news much in the future. I was like, oh, good. Maybe he's going to like either get kicked out or just put a muzzle on him. He goes, well, I don't know. I don't think I'm going to be in the news much in the future because we don't have any issues planned in the dicastery that could be very controversial like the yeah. last ones. But then he says, we are preparing a very important document on human dignity that not only includes social issues, but also a strong criticism of moral issues such as sex change, surrogacy, gender ideologies. And I'm just um, not controversial. We're not going to hear about you. So. Well. He might mean not controversial to conservatives and traditionalists, I think, you know, like in <laughs> yeah. other words, you know, that, that's a, that is actually a distinction, but you know, his first interviews after Fiducia Fabulosa, he was relishing the fight and he was like daring his, you know, opponents to take him on and not anymore. I mean, he really does seem, as somebody said, humbled, not humble that he got humbled and in like the, you know, the air got taken out of his wing, uh, out of his sails a little bit. So I, you know, he is kind of scaling it back and, and kind of, you know, checking his tone a little bit. And, 
I think we'll see. So, but that? I think I think the I release of that. this dossier. I think the release of that book, though. <laughs> Uh, I think that was like a shot across the bow. And some people are even saying that it probably came from people who might have even worked in that inside the Vatican as a way of trying to, you know, shots across the bow against this guy because they just think he's bad news. So, yeah, it's like the calls from coming from inside the house. <laughs> yeah. And, and I don't want to talk about this too long because we did cover it in previous episodes. I think the major update was that, you know, Pope Francis was aware of this. And it's, it's unfortunate that we have this kind of thing uh, currently in a position that's so close to defending doctrine. Uh, but but the other interesting thing, and and this is, seems like a unique Catholic vote uh, opportunity, he met with these communists. <laughs> I don't know. Just, well, well yeah, Marxism, communism, you know, handshake um, meme uh, go hand in hand. Uh, so he met up with these communists or these Marxists, and he talked about how uh, the Christianity and this share common ends, common goals, and I think it was as soon as I saw that it was just very. Uh, uh, shocking the break from the previous 10 popes maybe. Um, but it, it, we always give them a, a benefit of the doubt, but being careless with that kind of language is important uh, because communism and Marxism, uh, I would argue, no, don't have common goals with Christianity to confuse people that that even being the case is wrong. And then could also lead to, again, this, this positive view of something that's taken the lives of thousands upon thousands of people. Uh, Josh's uh, one of my favorite Josh quotes is name a time when communism has ever worked. Uh, I, I haven't seen it, but I think Marxism especially was worrisome because I see it so much in his language. So I guess it doesn't fully surprise me. Uh, was was it surprising to you guys that this kind of talk happened? It wasn't surprising to me uh, other than the, just the disgust that you, you see the Marxism next to, Oh, we have common goals with Catholicism. And that alone is, it, it's just shocking to see that because, and Robert Royal has a great column up. Uh, he wrote it this morning. It's in the Catholic thing. You can go look it up. I'll link it in the show notes. Um, but he, he's like, would you see the Pope standing up with neo-Nazis and saying, you know, the church and Nazis had common goals. We both just want a better humanity or something like that. No, you would never see that in a million years. And why is it, he says, why do Marxists get a free pass on, on the history of what their movement and their ideas have done? And, and the Pope himself I, has written extensively about the power of ideas and the power that the ideas have consequences, um, it, but not Marxist ideas, apparently. Have we never tried this before? We know what happens with Marxist ideas. Or if those consequences so. lead you to hell because, uh, not dogma, oh. but I like to imagine that hell doesn't, is empty. No one's there. Um, well, I mean, we kind of hope at that. least that's a, aspirationally a, a good thing, as opposed to saying nice things about communism. I guess <laughs> what, what's the nat rationale there? Like, we want to again, communism and Marxism, it's like the worst, it, it's the most, it's such a diabolical, you know, ideology that has murdered tens of millions of people, and yet it still has great PR because everyone cares about sharing and being nice to people or something like that. It's like Marxism never gets judged on its results, only on its intentions. Now, at least with Nazism or the Klan, the KKK, everyone understands their intentions are evil at heart. Like they hate Jews or they hate blacks. And therefore like these people are wrong and, and they understand them to be a danger and something that needs to be defeated and not to be promoted. But like what if Marxism wants to, demolish people in their wake and create a, an, an entire society based on envy and 
like why why don't we understand that to be an evil thing too it it right. it turns people against each other it smashes all forms of religious expression has no sense of the human dignity and the rights of an individual person everyone needs to be you know subjugated to the collective and what happens in these societies the communists and socialists they live like they have they live in their palaces they don't live like poppers right. do i mean it's a bunch of crap so right. you know i don't understand this but like the hell well, empty thing i find that in, do you want to go back to that one second yeah. though because it it does make sense in light of pope francis's upbringing uh, he grew up in argentina where communists were the good guys by the way and supposedly, and, and supposedly but in, in a time where the rival party were taking people out in helicopters and throwing them in the ocean so it, it is it's understandable that he may have this view but and then again the other thing that i saw was like well you get in a room with all these marxists what are you going to say to them that your ideology has killed thousands of people and have, have pushed people into poverty and gotten rid of their rights or whatever I kind of had an interesting thought. Yeah, I was like, I would hope the answer would be yes. Um, but that was kind of, I guess, an interesting thought of, uh, I think that the proper way to address that, though, is why were they there in the first place? I, I don't, why, why was this meeting happening? Don't we think we have other, it seems like we have other. Right. I mean, the Vatican this. has this longstanding rule where they will allow the leader of any with country, anyone. even a mm -hmm. dictator, to come in. So Saddam Hussein, Fidel Castro, you want to come to the Vatican and talk to the Pope? He will always listen because he's going to try as best as he can to promote peace and give peace a chance no matter what. And so people get mad, like, why are you getting your photo taken with this dictator? It's like, I'm really trying to stake out a position of peace where I will always listen to what someone has to say. But that doesn't mean you let any person or any ideological movement to come in. You know, so Nazis, commies, KKK members, like, no, why would you be seen with these guys? That's dumb. Don't do that, please. <laughs> That's interesting. I, I wasn't aware of that policy, but Anyway, um, yeah, I, the 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 hell comment. I did see someone dare we hope. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I do think they kind of gave him a hard time in that. I just think after seeing so, uh, sorry not to be coy about what we're referencing here. Pope Francis during an interview uh, said, you know, this isn't dogma, this isn't on the chair, uh, but you know, I like to hope that that hell. I like to think myself that hell is empty and that you know everyone's in heaven. And I think, at least me personally, seeing that, I'm like, of course, like we aspire, you know, no one would go to hell, but. I think, again, if we get to realism here, uh, the Bible is very explicit that uh, it's a narrow road. Uh, not many people make it there. And I think that kind of encouragement is actually not, not many people make it to heaven. Sorry. And I think that kind of encouragement is actually good uh, because it, it, it means there's accountability for our actions. Like like you have to act a certain to, to have the connection between heaven and your own actions be gone. I, I don't think it's positive for people. I don't think well, it's and I think too, there's a lot of talk, uh, especially leading up to Vatican II post-Vatican II about reading the signs of the times and Ajormiento and um, what's going on in the world. And in a teaching office, um, and again, I don't have the global view that the Pope does, but in a teaching office, it would seem that in a time when one of the major uh, issues with orthodoxy is that there's the denial of sin and the reality of hell, it seems like maybe comments like this about your personal preferences would be better couched within the context of what the church actually teaches about hell um, and what the church actually teaches about sin and the reality of our actions having uh, impact on our immortal souls. So again, it's just, for me, it's the timing of it. It's distracting. It's, it's not helpful given the society that most Catholics are living in. Um, so I, I it, guess it's one of those things where 
like I, I, I believe it was St. Teresa of Avila who was praying fervently for Judas Iscariot, hoping that mm-hmm. um, prayers could potentially somehow still salvage him, you know, and I guess that's to be commended, I suppose. Um, the thought is maybe after he put himself up on the tree and he's about to start swinging that f- brief moment, like somehow it could be paused, you know, in, in, in the magic of time, God is control and king of everything, that he could have that moment where he could realize this was a mistake. What have I done? Can I have, can I plead for forgiveness, Father? And maybe it's granted. And so maybe the population of hell is a lot less than we think. Um, and maybe there's that, still that last chance that God has to extend mercy towards us. So in our hearts to aspire that hell would have few people would be, of course, a good thing. But the yeah. problem is we don't want to make sure we want to make sure we don't do it in such a way where we think, look, God does allow for the for hell to exist. It only exists because he allows it. He could snap his fingers and it could be gone. And so God does allow that when people are so unrepentant and so wedded to sin and unwilling to break from that and that they turn again, the whole point is some people have enlightened us. It's not that God is like grabbing you by the back of your neck and throwing you into hell. It's that people have are somehow given an opportunity at grace at forgiveness and they turn their back to God and they walk into hell. And so that's actually the terrifying notion. And you know, we beg, we plead, we pray for the Holy, uh, for, for these souls to, to, to make amends. But we still, we, we shouldn't in this aspiration, in this hope that as every soul will eventually hopefully get to heaven, we can't blind ourselves to the possibility that in fact, there might be some hearts that are so hardened that they're just not going to accept the grace and they're going to turn their backs on God. And if that happens, then then there is punishment, you know? And it's this idea that in the modern man has this aversion to, I think, eternal justice. I mean, if somebody betrayed Jesus Christ, like Judas Iscariot did, and he's unrepentant, then, you know, that that would be, you know, deicide is an appropriate, hell hell is a a good punishment for that. Someone who rapes a child and doesn't care, like hell is a, is a good location for that person, especially if they don't get caught. But we have this mentality that we have to settle all things as best we can on this side of paradise, on this side of eternity. And so we just think, oh, well, you know, that's what jail's for. And we we lose sight of the eternal things. I think, no, like having a sense of eternal justice is actually a good thing. And I would say too, just to drive that home and make it more personal, it's most important that we have that awareness that we ourselves could go to hell. Like that I, not that, well, this group of people could be so bad that they that they might merit eternal justice or this group of people. But the important the most important thing for a faithful Catholic to remember is that I myself could turn my back on God. It, at some moment between now and the hour of my death, it is a possibility for me. And I think that's why, you know, the great saints, they'll say things like St. Francis called himself, I'm a worm. And other, you know, Pope John Paul II was known for going to confession. No, listen up. The Saint Paul, I don't like it. John Paul II, I don't like that. You don't like the idea you could go to hell? No, I don't like the idea of referring to oneself as a worm. Oh, okay. It's well, different. maybe you're more of a Dominican than a Franciscan then, which I totally sympathize Absolutely. with. But, you know, I try to, like, <laughs> open my mind to the possibility. Anyway, that being said, I do think it's it's important to 
to also, yeah, Peter Wolfgang in the chat there, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That's the most important thing. And if you're like, well, you know, I think, no I think Peter, Peter's I responsible right now for 50% of the comments. Peter uh, Wolfgang is like awesome. Yeah, uh, he delivered a show mail. notes list in the comments right here. Shout out. Thank you, Peter, <laughs> former guest. Um, now we have chapter and verse, Philippians <laughs> 2.12. All right. Yes. Awesome. So uh, we now move on to some Catholic vote news. Uh, we have a fun graphic here. Uh, we have Brian Birch. What's up, Brian? Hey, Brian. Uh, looking good looking in this good. graphic here. Uh, we have Catholic vote president calls out for Catholic schools to root out Marxist DEI. An interesting, uh, <laughs> interesting parallel here. So uh, <laughs> <Good segue. laughs> the story kind of started here with a school in Michigan. Actually, I'm aware of this school, Catholic Central High School. It's a, a large Catholic high school in Grand Rapids uh, with someone running as their DEI director. Um, there's a lot here, but I think people saw this in the loop. I saw it in the weekend loop and it really popped out to me that we're really tackling this on like DEI no longer kind of be something that, Hey, we kind of agree with it. You know, it's, eh, we don't have to make a strong stand now that airplanes are kind of falling out of the sky. It seems like we need to address this a little more heads on. Well, now, why did Kevin get involved specifically airplane doors at least, but yeah, well, I was being, I was being hyperbolic. Yeah. Uh, Great Josh. word, Pogo. It's classically trained. <laughs> y'all. Classically trained. Uh, so Josh, why, why, why is Catholic vote, uh, you know, offering this kind of, uh, lifeline to people frustrated with what's going on in their Catholic school. Yeah. I mean, DEI stands purportedly stands for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it's meant to be this, Hey, let's try to, you know, be diverse and be open to all different viewpoints. That's not actually at all what it is. It's a toehold in which people use these positions to promote Marxist ideology and, um, critical race theory and just say that the founding of our country was horrible and everyone was evil and there's nothing you should ever like about your own country for the most part. The biggest question we get when we publish the story, the story is why did a Catholic school have a DEI officer to begin with? I mean, you go look at the university of Michigan. They had, they spent like what, $300 million on their DEI office. They have like 200 or $30 million. They have 200 employees million. that are DEI. It's just, it's insane. So I, I have to say, it was really interesting. To see, the comments on this have been great. So we opened up this at our story. You go to catholicvote.org. You can see that story, as Tom pointed out. And I really like this comment uh, that Pat Hershwitzy. Her, you know, Let me zoom in. I, I, we apologize, I, Pat. <laughs> it's just one of those things. I should have had Pogo. You're more Slavic than I am. So I am. Give that pronunciation. <laughs> I'm only about like 6%. But Pogosic. I love you, Pat. <laughs> uh, so Pat writes, clearly titled, replete with winsome language, these programs and organizations impress principles that many Catholics conclude are aligned with church teaching. To a point, they are. But after several generations of poor, incomplete, and erroneous catechesis, Catholic judgment is skewered. They have been taught talking points of selective scripture, not the comprehensive embodiment of truth. Thus, we have relativism. As for love, experience has bowed many Catholics to a temporal, emotional, and psychological response. The Greeks were wiser in that they could distinguish eros from agape. Amen. It should be no surprise that when feelings guide many in uh, that feelings guide many in the institutional church. Moreover, consider that people overall read the news snippets, not any particular document. We see this in the recent brazen, yet inappropriate application of fiducia supplicants, where 
whereby at least two very public blessings of same-sex couples as couples were celebrated. So I just thought this was great. I mean, this is awesome. uh, Pat goes on to say DEI. The problem is that it actually incites division, exclusion, and inequality. That was a bar. I like that. That was <laughs> awesome. I think I think the kids we call have it great a readers. I, 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 a shout out to the readers of <laughs> uh, the Loop and the viewers of the Loopcast. So thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah, I love how the comment really nailed the the foundations of DEI. They're the same. It's this relativism, this twisting of the idea of love and and of freedom as well. Because DEI is going to be part of this, you know, your unconscious white supremacy that you're you're not you're not aware of just how prejudiced you are against people of color. And uh, I just I want to tout. I just did this great interview with John Burt. Not great because of me, because of John John <laughs> Bursch, who who is one of the lawyers who argued Obergefell. He just came out with a book on gender ideology with Sophia Institute Press. So that interview will be dropping in the next couple of weeks. And he didn't start the book by narrowing in on on sex, on gender, on on LGBT, but on this discussion of relativism and this lack of belief that there is any objective truth. And if your root and branch immersed in relativism and this idea that love is just letting anyone do whatever they want and feel good about it, if you're immersed in that, it's it is completely antithetical to the Catholic worldview, to the Judeo Christian, to the truth about the human person. So DEI, gender ideology, it's all one. So watch out for that that interview coming up with John Birch. Yeah, uh, Erica, you know, we, we can give you a little bit of credit. Okay. I think you did a good job with the interview as well. Oh, and, thanks. Uh looks like uh Larry, It was super fun. <laughs> shout out Larry. Uh he discovered the Loopcast as a fine, smart, and seemingly a good godly female host today. Uh, <laughs> Erica has been with us since the beginning. I don't know if was your, your <laughs> Voice well, been recently that she's been good. I'm a know. seemingly yeah. good godly. Yeah, we're we're working on it. We're working on yeah, it. Yeah, shout oh, out thanks, to Larry. Larry. We we try our best. Erica, you know, we we sometimes talk over Erica. I don't know, way too much. <laughs> so we're trying to let her talk a little bit more. Uh, not pointing any fingers at all. Yeah, no, no, no I fingers. Am. <laughs> yeah. right. My New Year's resolution, right? No, no, but like on the DEI stuff. Here's what needs to happen: If Donald Trump gets elected. I actually used to like William Barr. He, I thought he did a great job as Attorney General under Bush, uh, forty-one. I think I was I was hopeful that on a, when he came back under Trump, that he would really take it to the wall. He did some good things, right, like calling out the Russia collusion, but he just failed in other ways. And I hope that if Trump gets elected again this November, we get an Attorney General that declares war on DEI and recognizes it as a violation of the nineteen sixty-four Civil Rights Act. And goes after uh, local governments, goes after agencies, goes after uh, actually corporations. Like all you'd have to do is crack down on the most egregious corporation for violating the civil rights of em employees through employment discrimination on this DEI stuff to shut it down real fast. Well, Josh, it would be great. Uh, you know that really provides me a great segue here. We have a uh, a chart that was shared around uh, talking about equity and. Notice uh, on this bar graph down here, we have negative uh, 904,000 white people. Uh, this is for the S&P 100, and they're mm -hmm. adding 300,000 jobs. 94% went to people of color. Um, it's impossible to talk about DEI without discriminating against uh, a very unfavorable, unpopular group of people as of recent uh, white people. 
but uh, added all these other ones. So yeah, I, I think it like, goes back to what you're saying, though. Yeah, I like that bottom one. It's from the Washington Post, which is uh, <laughs> no no friend of equity or quality, true equality. Um, but what it's showing here is that it, it's really highlighting that all of this talk that the DEI, the level of of passion and the level of of yelling about how we still have systemic racism, we have to affirmative action was our key to successes. This is it's simply not true. Like the the change is being made in a drastic way over the last four years now, and um, the the data shows that in fact there have been there has been a swing in favor of quote unquote, more diverse, meaning more melanin people. And it's you know what's going to happen here? Mm -hmm. Tell me, I mean, Oracle. In education, I, I, I'm surprised it hasn't already happened. I, I would think like Asian students should start creating Asian universities. You know, like in many ways that the historically black colleges and universities, these students were discriminated against. And so people started forming their own black colleges to be able to, you know, administer to and give black uh, students historically a chance at climbing the ladder of, of success. And so like with affirmative action and Asians being blocked out of so many of these bigger schools, why don't they start schools like that? And then also in the workforce, you know, like pretty soon you're going to see companies are just like realize, hey, if they're a small upstart company, you don't have to make a lot of noise by being a massive corporation, but yeah, you can Josh, hire a lot of, you can hire a lot of white people. So I feel like that's almost like internalizing the framework of losing. Like it's not, should, it's, I mean, I'm just saying like, I understand I, the need I, for alternatives, but Josh, what did I start with this whole combo with Pogo? Did you remember? I said that I think local, I think the attorney general, if we get a new attorney general, they should go after these. And frankly, why isn't the attorney general of states like Florida and Texas going after these corporations right now? I think they should do that. That'd be great. All right, so let, let me try this. What if I tried to start a white college right now? <laughs> Because white people, according to that graph, clearly being discriminated against. Like, why do why does every race need to start their own colleges? Shouldn't colleges not, be open to everyone? Well, I don't think it needs to happen. Including Asians? Voice, but I, I would think that Asians might want to start it just because they're being vastly more discriminated against. Yeah. I just would like to abolish DEI, get back to the purpose. That would of the be the number one goal. Absolutely. That would be the number one. To everyone. Like, why do we even need to go I'm to I'm just the saying, if these things don't happen, you're going to see a, a balkanization it's gonna. It, I don't think it's a great thing. I'm just saying. Yeah, I'm, I'm not saying you support already. it, but I'm like, I don't think we're so far removed. I think the pendulum's swinging enough to where we can really whack some of these DEI departments. And so uh, I have a video I'd like to show you guys from United Airlines if anyone's flying recently. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to go over to the screen share. Not flying United. I'm just going to put that. Recommend, spoiler uh, alert. Spoiler right. alert. I'm going to I'm gonna run it up here. How is diversity and diversity targets working into the Aviate Academy? We have committed that 50% of the class of, of the classes will be women or people of color. Uh, today, only 19% of our pilots at United Airlines are women or people of color. And by the way, from all the data I've seen, that's the highest of any airline in the country. White males don't just dominate in the cockpits, also in the C-suite at United Airlines. Well, look, at United, I'm proud of the diversity that we actually have in our, our C-suite. I think if you look around corporate America. Correct me if I'm saying that. So I, this is based off your website. People you list as executives. Out of 11 people, three are women. I believe one is a person of color. Uh, no, enough. That's correct. Um, and it's not him. But, you know, in corporate America, I think. You know, Does the white guy. A low bar. How do you yeah. raise your own bar? Well, a lot of this is, you know, focusing on it. We have uh, programs to, one of the things we do is for every job when we do an interview, we require women and people of color to be involved in, in the interview 
process, bringing people in early in their careers um, as well, uh, and giving them those opportunities uh, and creating a stronger bank. That's what uh, being flustered looks like. Uh, that was the CEO of United being bullied by an Axios journalist over not having enough people of color in the C-suite. That's why, it, that's why it's all about the vision. So, you know what's interesting about the application of airplanes? And I have a lot you know, to display here. Peachy Keenan's been great on this. Shout out, Peachy. Mm -hmm. uh, Seth, Seth Dillon. Seth Dillon was awesome. Yeah. But, you know, specifically with airlines, you would like to think that um, it's we're coming to a little bit of a head because... I just want to get to my location safely and not have, you know, doors fall out. And so when it comes to things where people's lives are in the line, I feel like all the DEI stuff is kind of fun. Um, yeah, yeah, shout out, shout out, Brad. I mean, yeah, if, if he was truly committed to DEI, he'd resign. True. Um, so, but, but because safety is on the line, you, it's like, but not you, for me. we can have fun with the equality talk until rubber hits the road. If people can't get places safely, we need to have a discussion. And, and one of the interesting things that I saw was uh, Pete Buttigieg, of course, is involved as he is the uh, travel secretary. Uh, he, we're talking about their hiring practices at the F FAA. And I'm going to share this one. Uh, we have, uh, we're hiring people with targeted disabilities, including vision, like being blind. Um, this is the Secretary of Transportation hiring goal of 3% per fiscal year for individuals with targeted severe disabilities. Like, this is kind of the f all fun and game stuff until you're talking about people. I'm not even saying these are all pilots. Until you're talking about the FAA, right. But <laughs> even, even if you're not a pilot, even if you're in the tower, you should be need to see. I mean, there's no... Is it crazy to say I want my pilots to see? I want my air traffic controllers to see? I want people directing planes to see? I mean, I think that's necessary for safety. That's not even a... So it's just interesting. These yeah. are kind of the things we're focusing on here. Uh, we also have uh, some other priorities going up. Uh, this is Alaska Airlines. All the pretty girls walk like this, 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 this. Pretty girls walk like this. Is this the last thing you see before your, your window falls out on Alaska oh. Airlines? I mean... Guys, what are we, <laughs> what are we, what are we doing here with our airlines? Oh this isn't helping. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with Peter Wolfgang. It's almost like a Babylon B parody. I mean, I think the Babylon <laughs> B's got the hardest job there is because they they come up with these great ideas and then it, then they come like true. It, it's like the inspiration for these guys. They just make it real. It's like after a while, you're like what what is going on? That's why they had to create a website called Not the Bee. Like <laughs> this stuff was starting to actually happen. Truth well, is the best comedy. Yeah, and Seth Dillon, who's one of the guys who runs Babylon Bee, one of the founders. I mean, he's become sort of this uh, amazing commentator on this this madness. That yeah, originally these were his headlines that he made up as satire, and now he's become sort of the conservative like. And it's really happening now, guys. I loved his tweet. He goes, "We're nearing the point where we'll need." Elon Musk to buy an airline, fire most of the staff, and make merit-based hiring and safety its top priority. I mean, at that point, the the same thing to do becomes the satire because it's the reverse of reality. So, Seth, shout out to you. Sure, well, we we, we can laugh about all this, but in reality, yeah. is there anything unchristian about hiring based on merit, especially when it comes to airlines? Of course not. I mean, yeah. you want you want pilots, you want people working in the towers to be, you know highly skilled people obviously and like if you have people that have let's say disabilities i do think we should try to try to find jobs for people that they still have a way to 
you know, have dignity and contribute in some way, but like maybe the FAA isn't the agency for that, you know, maybe it's in a different agency. Um, but I, you know, again, it's one of those things where it, it, it really feels more like these people want to signal how virtuous they are, how much they love everybody and how they're so good and accommodating as opposed to saying, you know, again, it, everything should be understood as a balance. Like we want to be, try to find a place for everyone to try to contribute somehow. Um, you know, there are places for that. Uh, but again, I think no, just, yeah, no would have worked. I was like, <laughs> we don't, <laughs> Uh, come on guys like this is airplanes um yep. okay so uh we move on to the twilight zone now uh i have a a very personal one and then one that i'm glad i'm not personally experiencing so uh the first one i'm glad i'm not personally experiencing we have uh hillary clinton teaching a course at columbia university um turns out it wasn't very good uh which is unfortunate uh people said uh she failed to <laughs> loosen up loosen up <laughs> I believe the the course was in uh, like dealing with stress. Like I think it was like negotiation and dealing with stress uh, and yeah, bizarre. But but some of the when it comes to stress, so you just funny. need to wipe it away with a cloth. Yeah, wipe it away <laughs> with something. Is inside what? the situation room. That was it. Um, I love the comment. One of the students said, "It seemed like she mostly just read to us out of her book." <laughs> <laughs> Like, come on, Hillary. <laughs> uh, you know, she made a bag off this too, no doubt. There's no doubt she made so much of money off of this course. Um, so yeah, glad I didn't experience that one. Unfortunately, that <laughs> class didn't live up to the hype. No surprise to me here. But uh, you may notice uh, I am wearing a Canadian tux today, uh, but I'm also <laughs> wearing uh, you know, a Detroit. Uh, it's freezing in here. It's like zero degrees. The heat didn't work in the office, so I'm full coat, full um, regalia today. But I'm wearing a little Detroit logo. Um, it's actually not the official one, so you can't nice. sue me. Very mm -hmm. subtle. Uh, I am from the Metro Detroit area, and my Detroit Lions won their first playoff game uh, since the early your 90s. In your entire life. In your my, entire life. I've yeah. never been alive for the Lions winning a playoff game. Uh, I texted my family members uh, last night and this morning saying congratulations. We were all happy. Uh, you would not have been able to do that in 19, I believe it was 1993 was the last time. It was before texting was invented. Um, so, yeah, I've been through a lot of misery over the years. And uh, I was kind of talking to my wife about it. And the, the Lions really just had brought me a lot of joy this year. And there's very few things. And they killed it. They won by one point. Congratulations. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, okay. Yeah. It's that's a great cute, game. cute coming from the Vikings watching Nail that game her. on the couch. Um, but anyway, uh, I, I was talking to my wife. And I, I just think there's so little things in life that make you feel like a kid again. And watching this game and seeing seeing the lions win and seeing everyone in detroit crying and you know my dad my my brothers and my grandpa three generations of pogasics were watching this game at a bar in detroit do you and, see the clip tom about in the stands where the people are celebrating and they're like awkward and they don't even it's like it's been so long since they've had a so, <laughs> we don't even know how to high five <laughs> what is this strange ritual that they do when we win so but I, I, you know, I watched the win and I was just thinking about just being grateful for that, that moment where so many times I was sitting on the couch, you know, with my dad watching us lose in the most heartbreaking fashion. Uh, and it's just kind of a cool story of uh, the power of sports to bring people together, to bring people joy. I mean, just so it was just so pure. Uh, the coach, Dan Campbell, came in three years ago and uh, he was on the Owen 16 Lions team as a player. And he's the first one to break that generational curse. 
Um, so shout out to the Metro Detroit area. Shout out to the Lions fans out there. Uh, it was uh, it was just so fun. It was just like oh, great sports moments. Why everyone loves sports brings everyone together. Uh, I, so, I got to yeah, give it out. to you that, uh, Tom. I, 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 I respect. I respect yeah, it that you understood that the biggest twilight zone <laughs> is that the Lions actually win. That is truly a twilight zone. Josh, this is, it is, this the, is, the, rich. It is the upside down world. Is Erica. This is rich coming from the Vikings who are sitting on the couch right now and have done absolutely nothing. And He's failed that twilight you. zone. Usually we're in the playoffs. It's true. I agree. Yeah. Listen, I could that turn this into the zone. me roasting Josh and the Vikings podcast, but I won't. I'm I, did predict, the I did predict the Lions would lose in the first week. And so I, that's, there you go. So Oracle gets a zero on this one. You guys won by one point. Okay, you keep bringing that up, but a win's a win. Golf yeah. All you right. guys are bringing me back. Uh, that was like, it gave me great nostalgia. So the, the first uh, Super Bowl, the Patriots won with Tom Brady was the year we got married. So like, I oh, started my I started my married life with a real high there. Go Patriots! And uh, you're, so I'm you're having a little throwback, a little sadness. I feel a little sadness. Where you're, my still colors. you're still married. You're still married to married. Todd. You're still I'm married, married to Todd. Bill Belichick's gone, so I don't know. Yeah, if that's Bill's gone. Tom's gone. Paradise. Okay. Yeah, it's all good. No, we're good. We're good. Still married to Todd. It's all great. Okay. All uh, right. Erica, you are up. Yeah, I'm going to bring it down a little bit, guys. This is a little bit more depressing. So on Saturday night this past weekend, and you wouldn't know this if your only if your only source was the New York Times or NBC, CNN, you wouldn't know about this story. But there was hundreds of demonstrators going through Washington, D.C., ended up at the White House at the Secret Service barricade. And the the thin reporting that the media has given to this has characterized them as pro-Palestinian protesters, which yes, that is true. But there was definitely an added element here that kind of caught my ear. And this was this protest was actually occasioned by the U.S. military going ahead and uh, doing airstrikes on the Houthi missiles. The Houthis, you know, are the Iranian-backed, basically pirates in the Red Sea who have been just wreaking havoc on the only real shipping lane between the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean. Otherwise, you have to go around Africa. So this is a really big deal, and they are very clearly this is the Iranian Iranian regime. Um, you know, waging this sort of proxy war in the region on U.S. ships, including U.S. mercantile civilian ships. So we we have uh, committed to these airstrikes. We've, we're trying to shut them down. And these protesters on Saturday night, they're coming up not just with pro-Palestine and, you know, free Gaza, but they're saying, Yemen, Yemen, make us proud, turn another ship around. So it almost rhymes. And they're actually... They're rhyming. So they're they're rhyming protests. something. Yeah, right. And lots of calls of F. Joe Biden. But during the demonstration, and you can you can see this on uh, on Twitter if you want to go look at the the footage yourself, it 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 recalls the mostly peaceful protests of George George Floyd. Um, but they actually got up to the barrier, they're shaking it, things are being thrown over the barrier at the Secret Service White House. But here's the Twilight Zone. No arrests were made. And the statement from the Secret Services say that it was promptly resolved um, that we sustained temporary damage. Nothing and, to see here. Yeah, as oh, and not only that, but as a precaution, they evacuated media and staff who were around the White House at the time and relocated them as the issues were being addressed. But again, no, no arrests, almost no coverage. And I'm looking at the footage thinking trying to break through official barriers. Secret Service has to rush. They're like pushing people back. And 
you know, the January 6th anniversary just happened. So comes to mind. But that's my Twilight Zone continues to be an issue. I just. Yeah. Uh, what are they going to do about yeah. this J13 riot? Yeah. Nothing. Nothing. What riot? It was a mostly peaceful protest. I mean, was it an attack on democracy? You know, start <laughs> referring to the White House as this great, you know, symbol of democracy. Yes, a citadel yeah. of freedom. Well, it can't. It can't be a. It can't be an attack on democracy when the White House itself is pushing ultimate tyranny, and we we go over that at at length on this podcast. But that was my that was my Twilight Zone from the weekend. Thinking, where's the coverage, guys? No so way. I'll cover it. Uh, Josh, your Twilight Zone. See, mine is not even as exciting as this. I mean, I gotta admit, but I mean, I just again, pop culture it matters a lot because unfortunately, people watch you know these shows or whatever, and so now we have this. Uh, we we got to reboot Superman, obviously, <laughs> and so Lois Lane, the actress, is going to play Lois Lane. Uh, she was talking about how she'll be saving. You know, Lois Lane will be saving Superman. You know. Oh my gosh. We got to keep the whole girl boss routine going. Uh, this uh, woman, this actress, Phoebe uh, Divinar, actually didn't get the role, but she auditioned for it. But the whole point was they're going to do it. They got to they got to have uh, something fresh, something new. And so the woman who Rachel uh, Brosnahan, who's in the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, she beat, uh, she won the role, and she's going to she's going to be the, the new girl boss. Uh, the other actress who didn't win it, she said, the, Lois Lane, save Superman. She's the brains. She's actually the fearless one. Oh, my god! Again, it's just... I just don't like, understand. Is it How is this fresh and new? This is so tired at this point, right? I mean, Charlie's yeah. Angels, like, we've got to change. Like, everyone's got to be the girl boss. And we tried this with Snow White, and they can't even release the movie because it was such a bad idea. Nobody wants to watch it. Erica, the other this, one? This guy, Ghostbusters. Yeah. Ghostbusters, girl boss. This guy, Moosey, shares your, uh, shares your, your issue. Um, oh. Yeah. I'm just so tired I, of the strongest oh. heroes in the universe needing their girlfriends to save them from the villain. Can we come up with anything new for these women to do in these movies? Well, and again, it gets to the point where it's like, why can't women have their own heroes? Like, why do they just have to say, we need to carve out the husks of male heroes and, and put a woman inside that suit and that become the new hero? It's like, this is so stupid. You know, like, we got to make Thor a woman now. You know, it's like, what? what? Ghostbusters, they're all women now. It's like, why don't you come up with a new story? <laughs> I mean, crazy idea. Like, what's wrong with the old stories? Let them be there and yeah. come up with a new idea. <laughs> yeah, shout out Amber Eve. Wonder Woman question mark. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> cool. Um, well, I think that uh, that's doing pretty good for this episode. Thank you all for joining us for, for the live. Uh, one thing coming up here, we're actually going to be uh, reacting to the results from the Iowa caucus this week. Um, so we're going to have an interesting week. So uh, we're going to get an episode pretty soon after that Iowa caucus. You're going to hear all our thoughts, especially Josh's. I know that's what most of you probably come here for. Uh, Erica, hey. a godly woman as well. Um, <laughs> seemingly, seemingly godly. And I'm just here for the vibes. On so, election stuff, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and then after that, uh, so we have a special interview for the March for Life. I got to speak to Jean Marie Davis. She will be speaking at the March for Life. Uh, she is a, uh, she is the um, president. I forget the exact title, but she runs a crisis pregnancy center in uh, the east on the east coast in the New England area, in Vermont, and she had is almost hard to 
I'm just going to let you guys experience it. She experienced really serious trafficking for most of her life um, from age two to 29. Uh, and she really took what seemed to be the worst hand of cards possible and is now saving so many lives uh, over in Vermont and not only saving lives, but facing persecution for doing so from uh, people that uh, pro-abortion lobby. And so it was crazy talking to her and eventually being almost in tears at the end of it, hearing her just say from someone who was, you know, had such a bad life and had no value of, of my own life to be speaking at the March for Life to all of these people is just a, a complete honor. It was overwhelming. So uh, not to tease that too hard, but it was one of the, I mean, I just wanted to give her a hug after it was crazy. This woman's uh, fearless. So that's coming out. It'll be coming out for the March for Life uh, ready so that you can listen to it on the way there or while you're there. Um, so that's what's going on in the world of the Loopcast. And uh, I don't know. I, I don't have anything else for us. Uh, I hope you all enjoy your Monday. Have a great day. Uh, go Lions. Uh, we're, we're rolling on to the next <laughs> round. And uh, so we have St. Saint, Saint Fidelis, Our Lady Guadalupe, um, St. Thomas More, pray for us. And we will see you guys on the next episode. Peace. <laughs>